my best friend from college and the first love of my life was a man named James Robert Lamb. And we lived together as friends and companions and Jim got AIDS. He was very isolated and he was scared and he was manic. And Jim invited me to Florida to make a video. That's Alex Juhas. This is some of the footage she recorded back in 1992. Because he's fabulous, is that normal? Yes. And I have the Lupe costume. Plus, she wore in this, in this thing, she wore dresses. I mean, I've seen these dresses down here, which we can get for a song for you and for me. I was only recording for him in that moment because I thought he was unstable. And pink carnations or, or roses, like all the way down her bust, like this. Like, you could almost do it with a shirt with three big red carnations. Gorgeous. Jim's young, classically handsome, and he's sitting on the beach in Miami in a crisp short sleeve shirt, half unbuttoned. He's wearing a hotel towel as a headdress, and he's looking off into the distance. Jim's talking to Alex. For Miami, I did all these shows for Joe, and I kept changing hats. And we have pictures of But it's kind of hard to figure out what he's talking about. Hello, Dolly. And I did a lot of this, and with flowers coming out. And then I kept changing hats for all the characters. And then I did Guys and Dolls, which I just got the CD of. It is an honoring of what was a brutally painful, but loving, honoring of his request to make art with him as he was dying. Well, she had brown hair. It was really long and it was real. And he, because he was a voice coach, he could actually um, hold in his Adam's apple. Oh. So you could never ever tell that he was a man, you know? But he was funny and he was real. He said to me one time that um, to be a true drag queen, you have to have no pause in your existence. The tape just sat in Alex's closet for over a decade before she felt like she could do anything with it. But when she decided she was ready to revisit it again, she started making a film called Video Remains. Video Remains combines the footage she shot with Jim with reflections from friends about the ongoing war on people living with HIV and AIDS in the US. Then in 2005, she was invited to show it at the Flaherty Seminar. And during the post-screening discussion, she said something pretty surprising about it. I hated the footage, hated it. He wasn't telling stories neatly, and therefore it was hard to imagine making it into a documentary because documentary demands the proper subject. And if you were asked to sum up your life in an hour, how coherent would you be? He fails in the way that we all as regular humans would fail on the task of making a video that sums up our life for posterity, which is what he was trying to do. I mean, he knew he was dying. So there's something in its failure. Remember that this was still early in the consumer video era. In the 80s and the early 90s, 
It was finally getting affordable for lots of people to record video without thinking about what they were recording for. But Alex was mostly using her camera to record activist tapes about AIDS. HIV was utterly misrepresented in mainstream media. If you wanted to learn how to take care of yourself, utterly misrepresented. If you wanted to learn who had HIV and what their lives were like, utterly misrepresented. Like fundamentally racist and sexist and, and homophobic, definitively. So part of it was a politic that people who are ill are, they are experts in their own conditions and lives and their voices must lead conversations about the experience of the illness, but also what should happen next, the political conversation as well. For me, activist tapes are very utilitarian. They're for an audience. They're about an issue. They understand their relevance in relationship to a set of goals in the world. But Alex's tape of Jim doesn't do those things. It's not an activist tape. It's just Jim with Alex as he was dying. Was part of your sitting on video remains a fear about how images of HIV and AIDS in general and how Jim's image might be misinterpreted at best or weaponized at worst? I had no worries about showing Jim not as a heroic person with AIDS. I had trauma. (laughs) And I wasn't ready to be in that awful space where my best friend was dying and was not, you know, at his full capacities. And I had videotape memory of that. Like, what an awful legacy. And of course it wasn't an awful legacy because... It was an honest legacy. Video remains as painful to watch, even if you didn't know Jim. And maybe that's because we're watching it from the present, and we know the full toll of the war on people with AIDS. But it's not painful in the way images of war often are. It's not really a window onto an atrocity in a faraway place or time. And there isn't a sum of information to tell viewers what can or what should be done about it. Really, it just holds space for the loss and for grieving. And that means everyone takes away something different. Those differences are baked into the film. When Alex finally decided to revisit the footage, she was just starting to come to terms with her loss. She couldn't really make sense of what she was seeing. So she asked her friends to take a look and to tell her what remains. You know, how do you remember? Have you remembered enough? There's even a, a kind of guilt at not at not kind of holding fast to memories of people well enough or strong enough. Um, I I can't say that I feel that I'm I don't know un, honoring people's memories as well as I would like to. That's Elisa Libo. As an AIDS activist, she's grappling with the idea that. Not remembering Jim enough might mean she's not doing enough. And this is Sarah Shulman. If you suffer and you never get resolution or justice, then you learn that it doesn't matter how you treat other people, and you've learned it by the example of being the victim, and it becomes extended. Now, if you get accountability and justice, 
then I think you can have a real healing and the suffering can end. And that's why people strive for that. We often treat images of pain and suffering as if they have some intrinsic meaning that'll be immediately obvious to everyone. But for Sarah Shulman, these kinds of images only gain their clarity once the conditions that caused the suffering have been addressed. Millions of people died of AIDS, but it felt like the world just moved on. Maybe it's less about finding meaning in images of pain, and more about the struggle to give them meaning. In the absence of any kind of resolution or justice, the images of Jim, they just kind of hang there. I'm Jason Fox, and this is Trust Issues. Episode 5, What Remains? Alex's original footage of Jim was only seen by a handful of friends, and the meanings they gave to it are contained in the final film. But these days, raw footage is circulated online to millions who quote, tweet, caption, re-edit, and recontextualize it, sometimes beyond recognition. So what happens today when the same footage can be shared by opposing forces with very different political aims? That question stuck with me after seeing this one video clip online a few years back. And I asked a friend of mine, Stefan Tarnovsky, to walk me through it. Funnily enough, I haven't seen the video for a couple of years now, so... (laughs) He's an anthropologist who writes a lot about videos from the Syrian revolution. Okay, I've got it. It's the first publicly known execution video made by a member of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. The video begins with uh, three men kneeling on a square, with someone holding a black flag behind their backs and reciting uh, verses from the Quran and explaining that uh, these men are traitors and they're going to be executed. Three men stand point-blank rage behind them and execute them. Corpses being thrown down a ravine into an abyss. It continues to film the ravine which is being sort of morbidly circled by birds. And one by one, the masked men throw the corpses down the ravine. It seems to have very little more involved than simply a man filming with a camera, probably a phone camera, and then posting the video online, probably on YouTube. At a glance, the video looks like a thousand others that were recorded during the Syrian revolution and war. Honestly, that's what I thought. What I didn't know is the story of how I came to see it that it was hand-carried out of Syria by an ISIS defector, only to end up in the U.S. State Department social media campaigns. And the thing is that once you know that story, the video stops being a window under the reality of ISIS 
and it starts being a sort of funhouse mirror that reflects Western imaginations of the Middle East. But to make sense of the video's evolution, we first have to understand how it came to be. It's 2011, and cell phone videos of Syrian protesters in the streets of Daraa are being streamed to viewers in Damascus and in Holmes. There was a huge amount of optimism that the videos being uploaded by Syrians themselves were gonna inevitably lead to a sort of revolutionary overthrow of the Syrian regime. So there was a way in which the videos um, and the aspirations of the protesters were re mutually reinforcing of each other. For a lot of Syrians, social media wasn't the battlefield, but it was a tool they could use in their battle. At the time, Stefan was working as a researcher for the performance artist, Rabi Amrue. You can see this kind of aspiration Stefan's talking about in a performance called The Pixelated Revolution that Nui did in 2012. He's sitting in the middle of a dark stage, and he's lit by a reading lamp on a desk in front of him. And then behind him, videos from Syrian protesters' Facebook and YouTube accounts play on a big screen. He introduces one video he calls Double Shooting. It's a showdown between a regime soldier with a rifle and a protester who's filming him. We're watching the video the protester is recording. Emrue starts to talk us through what we're seeing. The film starts with the sound of a gun being shot, followed by a series of images of rooftops, balconies, walls, windows, and different buildings. The unseen cameraman makes a fast-paced introduction. Suddenly, the eye spots a sniper hiding in the street, lurking behind the wall of a building in the right-hand corner. The eye loses the sniper. It tries to spot him again. Nothing. 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 And then there he is. The image is shaking, as if the viewer's eye cannot believe what it's seeing. Then, without the slightest hesitation, the sniper lifts his gun and aims at the eye. He shoots and hits his target. The eye falls to the ground, turned upwards towards the ceiling of the room. The voice of the cameraman who was hit is heard saying, I am wounded, I am wounded, I am wounded. Then the screen goes black. Rui saw hundreds of videos like this, where Syrian protesters dared to record and upload images of Syrian military brutality. And low res is sort of equated with cheap production values and is thus a kind of sign of the essentially democratic nature of pixelated images. Revolutionaries knew that amateur video was an important tool for galvanizing people. But it wasn't a silver bullet. I mean, Assad could just as easily dismiss it all as fake news or worse, as a terrorist conspiracy, like he did in this March 2011 speech to the Syrian parliament. It is no secret to you that Syria today is the target of a great conspiracy whose strings are pulled from countries near and far and extend inside the homeland. 
They could circulate images of torture and killings in detention that attempted to terrify these popular movements. So Syrians, right from the beginning in 2011, were aware that these technologies, far from guaranteeing a sort of transition to democracy, for all of the ills that they solved, they created new ills of their own. While revolutionaries were battling against the state in the street and on social media, Western coverage was acting like Silicon Valley had already won the war in Egypt, Tunisia, and Syria. Syria's uprising has been called the YouTube revolution because of the distinctive videos documenting state violence against peaceful protests. In a Skype interview from Cairo, Zidane says the Egyptian revolution made history because of the internet. If I can name it, I will name it the Twitter revolution. In a major speech on internet freedom, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said the U.S. will provide more help for internet users worldwide to get around filters and get their message out. We have uh, our ear to the ground talking to digital activists about where they need help, and our diversified approach means we're able to adapt to the range of threats that they face. That was CNN, CBS, and NPR on the wonders of social media. But no one overstated it better than Hillary Clinton's former advisor, Alec Ross. The Che Guevara of the 21st century is the network. I don't know if these Western media outlets really thought that it was social media companies that were driving, you know, this third wave of democratization or whatever they called it. It kind of seemed that by granting these media companies naming rights for these popular movements, it could at least make them palatable to a global audience. People sometimes refer to this as the find the white actor school of journalism. Like, if a popular uprising on the other side of the world feels confusing or unrelatable or scary, then you just filter it through Western ideals and values. I mean, one difference between Che Guevara and Facebook is that only one of them is a person. When journalists focus exclusively on tech platforms, they forget that people holding the cameras are actually fighting for their lives. In 2011, when the revolution started, Syria was still a relatively closed country. It didn't have a large number of foreign journalists in the country, nor did it have an independent media of its own. You know, there was a regime-controlled media and regime-controlled TV stations. And so foreign journalists were either denied entry to protests or uh, they had their visas revoked and were simply kicked out of the country. So very early on, there were kind of two choices that people following events in Syria from the outside had. They could either follow the regime narrative by following the regime media, or they could turn to the images and posts being produced by Syrian activists themselves on the ground. By 2014, basically all the footage coming out of Syria was recorded secretly by citizen journalists or openly by soldiers and fighters. And it was a great situation for broadcasters. I mean, amateur videographers would upload shaky, grainy, frontline video to YouTube. 
and then news producers just download and incorporate it into daily news segments. The footage is authentic, and they don't have to pay for it. And as these clips become recirculated, news organizations, especially ones like Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, start uh, reaching out directly to various activists and asking them to produce more and more clips for them in order to fill their news slots about what's happening in Syria. And on the other hand, activists themselves start reaching out to satellite news companies and sending them their footage directly. But that didn't last. A couple years in, media activists needed to actually make a living. News broadcasters were ultimately producing a commodity, and commodities need to be unique if they're going to be valuable. So, outlets decided they wanted exclusive rights to footage, and they started hiring amateurs to get it. This often took place with exploitatively low pay. I'm, I'm thinking of one war photographer in Aleppo in particular, who shot images for Reuters for three years once the revolution militarized, continued to follow a particular militia, and was killed on the front. And it came out after he was killed that, in fact, this young war photographer was, in fact, only 16 or 17 years old. And so the time at which he started working for Reuters, he was just 13. You know, stringers often didn't have contracts, and if anything did happen to them, uh, if a stringer was killed, they wouldn't have to pay any compensation to the family. It's great if you're a citizen journalist and you get your story and it's posted on, you know, on CNN and you're like, wow, I've been published on CNN. But the question of going back out there and doing that day in, day out and digging deeper into those stories, you have to have some type of remuneration. That's Jonathan Giesen. In 2011, he was living in Cairo and thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. So Giesen co-founded a company called Transterra, this online marketplace where big news agencies could buy footage from local journalists. News agencies didn't have the reach from an on-the-ground coverage standpoint that they had historically had just because of budget cutbacks and so forth. And so, you know, the CNN needs to get a story out of Fallujah. How would they find the people? How would they manage it? How would they know where they are in production? How would we deliver that content? Transterra was basically an image broker. Here's how it worked. Citizen journalists upload footage to Transterra's server, and then Transterra edits it and packages it into a story for CNN or you know, whoever's buying it. But first they needed to make sure buyers could trust the footage was legit. I'm just trying to think of any moment where somebody actually faked their content. Um, I think there was a plane crash once upon a time that was faked and they gave us like footage from a Afghanistan or something like that. One of the strengths of Transterra was really to understand who these guys are and have extensive conversations with them kind of, you know, through the onboarding process and then cross-check who they're working for, who they're affiliated with. And we would put together a whole kind of a ranking system on the back end. That was the easy part. Remember when Stefan said Syria is a closed country? For most of the war, journalists couldn't get in or out. There's this brief window after revolutionaries liberated a lot of the areas along Syria's border with Turkey. A huge number of international organizations, companies, humanitarian organizations, media outlets, satellite news stations, set up offices in certain big towns and cities 
quite near the Syrian border. And because the border was open, towns along the Turkish border with Syria became sort of hubs for everything from uh, international NGOs to media organizations. We built uh, an uploader that was capable of, of, of accepting video at two kilobytes per second over you know, the course of days. But where the journalists were not able to upload, they would hand carry that content directly over the border. And that's how Transterra first got hold of a little handful of videos from an ISIS defector. He'd carried them 200 miles across hostile terrain from Raqqa to Gaziantep, which was a Turkish city just north of the Syrian border. And when Giesen reviewed the footage, he felt like people really just need to see this. So he brought the clip to the head of Vice News, and he was like, there's this new Islamist militia that's committing war crimes. But Vice wasn't interested. To them, it was just another atrocity video by a group they never heard of in some place they never heard of. And he wasn't just getting it from the networks. Journalists um, were getting a little bit, uh, shall we say, peeved with Transgera Media in terms of, look, this is an amazing story. Don't you understand what's going on? And we're like, we totally understand what's going on. It's just that nobody is necessarily interested in the story. The problem is that at this point, ISIS wasn't ISIS yet. They're just another militia. Device and other networks, any 13-year-old in their parents' basement could find gruesome videos on the internet. So the clip just sat on Transterra's server, waiting for the news to catch up. And eventually, it did. Brutal, well-organized, and well-financed. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, also known as ISIS, has rapidly morphed into the world's most dangerous jihadist organization. This was one of the most media-savvy organizations out there. It started producing more and more of its own execution videos, which it circulated online, generating a kind of a moral panic in the West. As the panic surrounding ISIS grew, so did the value of this clip. Giesen went back and took another look at the footage from the ISIS defector in Gaziantep. And he noticed something. One of the clips featured a woman talking with her family in Raqqa. But she was speaking French, not Arabic. So he ran the clip over to the French broadcasters TF1, France 2, and France 24. A glimpse into another world. This footage has been filmed by a woman who's concealed a camera under her required niqab, risking her own safety as she walks through the streets of Raqqa. Now you have the linguistic, cultural connection directly to a French citizen in Raqqa, and that pinged on the radar of the French, and they picked it up. Once the major French broadcasters picked it up, then the rest of the world was very much interested in that story. And by the rest of the world, he doesn't just mean the rest of the West. Even the Dubai-based broadcaster Al Arabiya told Giesen that they picked it up based on coverage in The Times. And in the end... Transterra Media went from not being able to find a buyer for it to this clip being the most expensive clip he said that they ever sold. So it was sold for $710, which, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but for a YouTube clip, that is quite a lot of money. I really wish I could say that that was the end of the story. 
But the clip was sold in 2014, just as the Syrian revolution was devolving into a full-on proxy war, with Iran, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Britain, and the US meddling to serve their own interests. Enter President Obama. Uh, we have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation. And here's a reporter asking Prime Minister David Cameron about it. People have heard you say that this is crossing a red line. They hear the strength of the rhetoric and they maybe ask, what does that mean? Well, I, I think we, we should be clear that this is not about putting British boots on the ground. That is not... In the summer of 2013, the U.S. and Britain are constantly talking about Assad's use of chemical weapons as crossing a red line. But the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq a decade earlier was clearly a disaster. And it meant that leaders had to think twice about putting boots on the ground. Still, ISIS was such a classic supervillain, and they hated to let a good moral panic go to waste. The lack of appetite for intervention, coupled with the optimism for social media, created a kind of faith that, you know, the next best thing to military intervention is uh, intervention in the media sphere. Instead of soldiers, the US and British government sent strategic communications teams into neighboring Lebanon to set up nonprofits. And so you could have one media office that this Stratcoms company would be setting up would be to counter radicalization. And another media office this uh, Stratcom's company would be setting up would be to promote democracy and human rights. And this only grew exponentially with the rise of ISIS and with ISIS's own uh, media strategy. Not very successfully, it has to be said. I could go to a Syrian working for uh, an independent newspaper like Aina Baladi and I would say, do you know anything about this media platform? They would take one look at it, maybe read the about page and say, oh yeah, that's an American funded one. And I'd be like, how do you know? Like, oh, I can just see it there. You know, it's this stuff about women's rights and democracy and this and that. And they would, they would list us. One of those media platforms was called Masarat, an Arabic word for path or track, as in the right track. They're ostensibly a grassroots Lebanese nonprofit According to their YouTube, they're committed to journalistic objectivity. But really, they're funded by the British government. Funds that Maserat ended up using to buy the execution footage from Transterra in a more direct attempt to delegitimize ISIS in the eyes of the Syrian people. But I mean, the thing about ISIS was that for uh, the huge, vast majority of Syrians anyway, they were completely illegitimate. So. Uh, that in itself was quite an absurd task. Not that it mattered to Maserat. They hastily edit the ISIS clip together anyway, adding satellite images that geolocate the gravesite, and then upload it to their YouTube channel. They call it where ISIS hides its corpses. It was presented as a kind of forensic investigation, uh, identifying the location of ISIS mass graves. It has this cut of the pictures of the execution to geolocation images, back to images of the corpses being disposed. In other words, Maserat created a splashy video 
claiming to solve a crime that no one was actually investigating, and that the video would help them wrest the hearts and minds of a generation of young Arabs away from ISIS. And they said they had the data to prove it. But that's not what the data actually showed. What those YouTube analytics tell you is, in fact, really blunt. Like, you can tell how long someone watched a clip. You can tell at what point they clicked off. Um, you can tell potentially the location of the viewers and maybe some demographic information about them as well. And this is when things really start to get weird. Cue the U.S. State Department Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications, which is essentially a kind of counterterror social media meme lab that's run by middle-aged guys in khaki pants. This is their former coordinator, Alberto Fernandez, talking about Al-Qaeda, or AQ. AQ, of course, were the vanguards, so they pioneered a certain style, certain way of doing things. But Al-Qaeda is your, your, your parents' internet. It's uh, AOL.com or MySpace. These guys get the ISIS clip on loan from Maserat, and they decide to take things a step further with a video they call Welcome to ISIS Land. It involved repurposing the footage of ISIS atrocities and including sort of sarcastic captions that were meant to dissuade viewers from going to join ISIS. Even though they swore by the power of social media, they still had no idea who was actually clicking on the videos they made. But someone working for CNN saw it, and so did a producer for Last Week Tonight, the HBO show hosted by comedian John Oliver. It seems that everyone has noticed ISIS's viral success, even the US government, because they recently decided that for some reason it would be a good idea to try to beat ISIS at their own game. The State Department has produced a counter-narrative wolf, a new video from the State Department. We can show you a clip of that right there as well, that it sarcastically kind of tells potential ISIS recruits that they can, quote, learn uh, new useful skills by blowing up mosques, by crucifying and executing Muslims, as you see there. Cue an incredulous looking Oliver. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> the State Department has genuinely created a sarcastic parody recruitment video for ISIS that begins with the words, run, do not walk to ISIS land. <laughs> and you are banking a lot on any potential militants understanding that that is sarcasm. Oh. You know what? I was just about to join ISIS, but then I saw your very clever video <laughs> telling me to join ISIS, but using ironic juxtaposition of words and images to suggest that I should actually do the opposite. Just like Chandler in Friends, you know, could we be any more militant? Great stuff. <laughs> I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Jonathan Giesen buys the clip in an open-air market along the Syrian border in Turkey and can't sell it to anyone. Not even Bice, who built an empire on this kind of stuff. Then, when ISIS conquers Mosul and starts making headlines, Maserat buys the clip and repackages it as a forensic investigation into the heart of darkness. It then gets picked up by a U.S. State Department counter-propaganda organization, which creates really one of the most surreal pieces of video art you'll ever come across. And then finally, this kind of Frankenstein of a piece of work gets spoofed on John Oliver. 
So you just see this kind of clip take on a life of its own. And really, that life is being animated at every stage by different Western imaginations and lack of imagination regarding what this group is. In the two years after the clip aired on John Oliver, a lot happened that would curb Western journalists' enthusiasm for the democratic ideal of social media. In summer 2016, 51% of British voters approved a referendum to withdraw from the European Union. And then five months later, Donald Trump gets elected president. And because it was easy to blame social media, that's what we did. But we couldn't just laugh it off anymore. And so YouTube, or more accurately, Google, changes its user agreements to make it harder for people to access stuff that might radicalize them. But they either didn't know how, or they just couldn't be bothered to distinguish between revolutionaries and ISIS. In 2017, they took down roughly 400,000 videos from the Syrian revolution. You know, this generated a big outcry. People were pretty sure that the revolution wasn't going to succeed, or at least not in any immediate sense that they envisioned in 2011. You know, Syrian media activists turned a lot of their focus to war crimes tribunals. And so these videos became kind of key evidence for the promise of a future war crimes tribunal. Organizations like the Syrian Archive started setting up their own servers in order to archive images since 2011 produced inside Syria. So they created their own web crawler that managed to harvest most of the images that were on YouTube and Facebook um, and store them securely on their own servers. But the problem is that they can only restore the images that they knew existed. So things that we thought would exist forever online were uh, now being lost forever. You can still find the ISIS execution footage online, but not directly. It'll be embedded in an international news story, some hokey psyops project, or a late-night comedy show. And I wonder if all the different lives the ISIS footage has lived is evidence of our ambivalence about circulating images of pain. Our news media tells us we do it because images have power. They're effective at bringing moral clarity to a distracted world. But then we take them out of circulation because they're effective, just not in the way we want it. In either way, the people most affected by images from the Syrian revolution, they didn't have much of a say. The cliche that histories of war told by the victor is a cliche because it's true. In this case, it was John Oliver who got the last word. And those words are valuable because without access to all the media produced across a decade of struggle in Syria, that's what remains. Trust Issues is written by me, Jason Fox, and it's produced by Aliyah Pabani. The story editor is Brett Story, and music on this episode is by Alabaster de Plume, the Harlem Underground Band, and Date Palms. The story of the ISIS clip is based on original research by Stefan Tarnovsky. 
Additional support was provided by Antoa Studio and Sari Horowitz at the Flaherty. The series is co-presented by World Records and the Camden International Film Festival. And it was made possible thanks to the generous support of the Flaherty as part of an ongoing initiative to make seven decades of the Flaherty Seminar archives available to researchers and creators. Special thanks to John Sesrigoff, Mary Pelzer, Ruth Samalo, Samara Chadwick, Mariana Reese, Cooper Battersby, Emily Vay Duke, and Elisa Lebo. If you want to see excerpts from the works we talked about in this episode, go to the World Records website at worldrecordsjournal.org. And thanks for listening to the series.